1984 by George Orwell. Part 1, Chapter 1. All right, everyone. It is August 4th, 2019. I am here with Dipey Dipey. I am broadcasting out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And my friend Dipey, where, where are you broadcasting from today? Uh, the Fair Isle of Jersey in the English Channel. Fair Isle of Jersey. I haven't heard of that until now. <laughs> it's the old Jersey of New Jersey fame. going to have to look that up later so I can know where that is at geographically. Because <laughs> I don't right now. But um, we're going to talk about the first chapter of 1984 today. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to test it out for the first couple chapters. We're not exactly sure the best method to approach this. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick out maybe a passage or a sentence or a paragraph that stuck out to us, and we're going to discuss it. How's that sound, Dipey? It sounds good to me. Uh, we just had a rather interesting pre-call chat where we established that both of us have read the book before when we were younger. And it was interesting that we had similar, kind of similar first impressions that, you know, it's a warning about communism. And there's like, it kind of, in some regards, brought about like a, a fearful state. And for me, I read it a second time round. And my views then were slightly more Infowars paranoid-ish. And I was viewing it more as, this is what's being done. And the third thing which kind of came out for me in our prequel was, I'm going into the book with some with a preformed view where I'm expecting to see it as an allegory for the way things are now, but also that as well as it revealing some truths about the way things are now, it does seem to be also interspersed with some things which can lead you into a fear-based state of mind. So in some regards, I'm viewing it as we discussed on the site about the Bible, where it's a hoax which contains some truths, but may also contain some less useful things as well. Yeah, definitely. I went through <laughs> the same phase. Cause I remember I, I, I had the audio book. I downloaded it when I was in that InfoWars phase. And, you know, you're like, this is good. This is what's going on. But it's happening. It's hell on earth. <laughs> but no, it's after... After stumbling on JLB's site, I only uh, reread a few passages. The ones he mentioned that highlight the history hoax or the war hoax or the dinosaur hoax. So it's definitely going to be interesting going around rereading the book without, you know, the hell on earth glasses and try to parse through the allegory or the over exaggerations from maybe what the message Orwell is trying to get across. So it should be interesting. I guess I'll start it off because the first sentence when you read the book, it starts, it was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. And that stuck out to me because clocks are probably one of the most used inventions of our times right now. And to function off stuff like hours, minutes, seconds, days, weeks, months, years, it's, um, it's like tempus mortem. It's, it's lifeless time, you know? We're functioning on a clock, like machines run on clocks. But now that you know, looking at a clock and measuring time is so part of our culture and in everyday lives, it might be something that we kind of look past. And I believe that setting up your day 
by, you know, different divisions of time. I'm going to do this at this time. I'm going to eat breakfast at 9 a.m. I'm eating lunch at 1.30. It's mechanical behavior. And over time, constantly engaging with it, it has the ability to promote unconsciousness because you're not functioning off of the sun, which, you know, you could consider as a clock or you're not functioning off of your own biological clock. You know, I, I'm hungry now. I will eat or I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep now. It's more, it's way more structured than that. Cause I have to get up at this time to work. I got to be there at this time. I take my lunch at that time. It's taking this abstract idea of time and it's different measurements. And now we're, we're applying it to our real world, which it's, as I said at the beginning is a bit of lifeless. Sorry if I rambled on there, but I wouldn't worry. Ram rambling's the way. I I work out what I'm thinking. From that first sentence, the thing that had jumped out to me was that it firstly it, it the book is starting in April and April on supposedly older way of starting the calendar was the start of the start of the year because spring is the start of a new cycle, it's time of rebirth in Christian chronology you know it's the time of the resurrection which literally means to, to rise again and I hadn't really thought about clocks but obviously that's time as well which has a start and a, a finish but then also the fact that he says it's striking 13 yeah yeah I was just to say yeah I noticed it uh, striking 13 too and then and then it says the flat was seven flights up in Winston who was 39 13 times three <laughs> kind of noticed that too oh yeah there's there's a few bits of numerology i was noticing i mean as it was starting just 1984 on its own i hope my math is correct yeah it's 22 and in tarot the 22 cards of the major arcana the numbered ones got to 21 and then the 22nd but also the zeroth card is the fool and like the path of the fool is similar to the hero's path so this first with the title of the book and then the first sentence it kind of just looking at through the numbers maybe start to think of this is and with april this is a start of some kind of a, a fool's journey or a hero's path start of a new cycle and with a cycle or the fool's path the end usually has something to do with the uh, beginning very interesting stuff that's that's the, that's why you come keep going through it because you pick up on little things like that the other thing from just the first paragraph because you also get victory mansions then through the first chapter you get um victory cigarettes victory gin and coming from where i come from we had german troops here in the second world war and even nowadays if they're going to name something it's named like Liberation Bus Terminal or something. And it's always Liberationist or Liberty That. And it's that kind of, even calling something victory still carries a fear-based connotation because you think, well, you're not being scared, you're celebrating the victory, but it carries in it. If you don't follow, you know, the rules or what the system says, then the system which got us out of the war. So you've got to carry still some fear connotations in the world. I understand, because maybe if you didn't stick to the plan or the system, we would have lost, and you know, we would have been losers, not victors. <laughs> maybe another way of looking at it. Anything else stood out to you on the first page? And that was from. I mean, the, the other thing was for the second paragraph. I mean, obviously, we both said the first time we read it, it reminds you of those warnings of communism, and uh, that first sentence of the second paragraph is the hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mat. And it just sounds like communist communist russia and then at the at the very end of it it's the first time that you have big brother is watching you so those are the other the other two points of that first page 
Yeah, and it also kind of hits on like this um, gloomy, dark sort of rhetoric that Orwell engages in when he writes this book. Yeah, exactly. That's and that's what we were just talking about before. So if it's an allegory for our time, that's why it's more of an allegory. Then you can't over literalize it if it is about the way things are, because I don't know, for most people living in the West, think things aren't that that gloomy but you can see in an allegorical sense lots of the things that go on is is being as in the west so almost that's what makes people think it's either a manual or a a warning because it's it's kind of the the truths are hidden by making it look like it the the everyday sense of it is so different i agree and then once once you hit over to the next page, Orwell immediately um, brings up the telly screen. So right away in the book, he, he wants to bring your attention to the telly screen. You know, a couple pages later, he's gonna, um, there's going to be a passage about the, the war film. So he, he's basically setting up and also for like, you know, when he's in his room, he's stretching or something and the screen can watch and hear him. So I just wanted to like point out that, yeah, like immediately at the beginning, he's bringing up the telly screen. Yeah. And that gets interesting as it goes along because yeah, you're, you're right, he brings up the telly screen and then how the thought police can monitor you and you can never quite tell when it is. And again, if we think about that being monitored, the way it would translate into the way we're told about these things nowadays is it's released via the media so oh there's just been discovery that you know the cia are monitoring these things or this is being kept an eye on so there's less again it's not a direct thought police but there's a different way in which it's manifest in in the world that we live in yeah i agree maybe the um, like the way when he says something like big brother is watching you maybe it's not like oh we're like watching recording through tv but maybe the ideas and the false events being pumped out maybe that can be viewed in a sense as they're monitoring you and trying to kind of manipulate your subconscious and maybe like how you think about what's really going on you know what i mean like you're kind of in this test tube and you know the screen is what's keeping you informed if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I mean, it's one thing that, that's unusual and it shows how easily people will accept a new way of being because the first time I read George Orwell, if I'd have spoken to people back then, the idea that, that you could be monitored the whole time would have been shocking to people. Like, people were already talking about, well, people were legitimately worried about those things. And then they came in and no one really battered an eyelid. But the reason I say that is it just kind of shows how as much as people say, oh, we, the people won't stand for this, there's no, <laughs> people, people accept anything. So it makes you wonder if how much of, if we did have more liberties, say, 20 years ago, it would, probably was nothing to do with the fact that people, you know, fought for them or would never have laid them down. It's just that we were allowed to have them then and maybe we won't be allowed to have them now. But I can't see that. It, I think people will accept whatever they're told they're going to accept. Yeah, and it kind of just touches on the ever-changing definition of freedom. And I guess watching you, I don't, I guess, maybe in a way you can say that's conditioning you, because, like, 
they're pumping out the crap on the media to i mean at the end of the day its purpose is to change the way you think and to maybe orient it towards what they want you to think and whatever is a part of i don't know their plan or agenda and i remember i've went a while back on the site jlb was talking about well if we are being monitored is that something which you know you should actually be worried about or if you're if you if you're living correctly, then kind of the idea of Big Brother almost brings out it, it tells you, like inside yourself, it kind of brings out if you are living properly or not. But then just reading, you know, when you first read about what Winston's room is like, whether it should bother you or not, the way that the way that I am. I can tell whether it should or it shouldn't. There's that just horrible creepiness about the whole setup. Yeah, and it might have been one of those things, like part of his rhetoric, like, oh, yeah, it's watching you. It, it may add to like the sort of creepy factor in the book. Whilst we're talking about the telescreen, I'm just skipping ahead to page eight because there's something which is very interesting for me here because at the beginning we talked about April being the start of a cycle and 1984 being the you could have 22 of the number of the fool because it says for some reason the telescreen in the living room was in an unusual position instead of being placed as was normal in the end wall where it could command the whole room it was in the longer wall opposite the window and because of this setup Winston was able to remain outside the range of a telescreen uh, he could be heard but so long as he stayed in his present position he could not be seen and in the book it's almost like you're the way that your faces can give you away so it made me wonder why is it that Winston has this particular this particular flat where he's able to do this if there's an element of in a Truman show sense of actively being initiated now I don't want to do any spoilers but we'll see as the book goes on how that turns out for him but is he even when he was given his flat was there a reason why he gets it where he's able to start doing because he's about to start writing his diary which he couldn't have done if he didn't have that particular setup yeah I agree I it's just, you know, when I was reading, I'm like, hmm, you know, the main character so happens to get this, you know, this perfect room where he can, like, hide and can't be seen and where he can write in his diary. And the diary he writes, the date, because we now find out the exact date, which is April the 4th, 1984. And for April the 4th, that's 17, which is the star in Tarot, which had that significance in the Truman Show. And... If you add up the full, including the year, it's number seven, which again is uh, a cycle. It's a week, so it's a whole, it's a whole cycle from the beginning, the beginning to the end. So here we're, we're at the beginning of some cycle and perhaps some revelation, which made me think, why he, him? And some thoughts which follow on further down the chapter I started to wonder at this point if perhaps Winston and I wouldn't have thought this if I hadn't read the book before if perhaps Winston could be viewed as a PC in a predominantly NPC world that's tough to say because then when I mean we're not there yet in the book but when he meets O'Brien O'Brien yeah it's, it would seem like Winston's more of an NPC than O'Brien's more of a PC. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird how that kind of contrasts later in the book. 
Because uh, Winston's scanning faces, like he sees the girl and he has some revulsion at her because she looks like I don't know, just such a, a herdswoman. And all the people is there screaming at uh, old Goldstein. Uh, so it's kind of like he's stuck with all these NPCs. And that, but when he sees O'Brien, he, he looks at him and he thinks that O'Brien's look says, I am with you. So it's like he, Winston, he's, he's not maybe perhaps not a full NPC, but he's stuck because when they have the two minutes hate, as it starts, he, he hate he doesn't like, well, he hates the two minutes hate. But he says at some point you can't help but join in. So he's being dragged into this like herd NPC mentality. But at the same time, he's, he's trying to look for like look at O'Brien to think, is this someone who's like me? And he thinks his face is. He's like trying to do a, a Turing test on O'Brien to see if he can see something in his face which says that he's not like everyone else and I'm not like everyone else either. Yeah, it kind of touches upon our mass society, however it's kind of like depersonalized and you're just, you kind of have to go along with the group think to kind of just get ahead and live your life. Even when he starts writing his diary, I mean, he says he doesn't even know why he's starting to write. And then he gives a reason, which is, oh, it's for the future, for the, like a generation to come or something. And he, he straight away contradicts himself and says, but how can you write to the, the people who haven't come yet? How can you write to the future? And then, so I don't think that's his real reason. And then he just starts writing down like some all the things he did that day it's like a, a stream of consciousness and he says that he he transferred his restless monologue so again it's like he's trapped in this npc world but in his head he has this restless monologue going and perhaps he doesn't even know if anyone else has one and the only way he can prove it to himself is just to start start writing it down it's funny how he kind of mentioned, you know, it was kind of tough to, you know, I had these thoughts and then he gets the notebook, pen in his hands, like, all right, start writing down your thoughts. And it's like, ah, uh, kind of blank. And I've, I've definitely had that feeling before. It's like, I'm, I'm in my car, I'm just driving. I have all these thoughts. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to pull up my phone, hit record and just re-listen to it later. It's like, you know, as soon as you hit record and you're like, all right, I'm actually going to transfer these thoughts into uh like written words or speech you, you're kind of like okay what was i thinking again you kind of <laughs> you get I, I i've had that you just get hesitant you're like oh i i don't know i don't i don't usually do this you know what i mean yeah exactly because when you're in that monologue it's going perfectly and then if you when you try to sit down when you try to sit down you're then you're separating yourself from your thoughts you're like right i need to really write something significant now you know if i'm milking cows i work out like all sorts of stuff but by the time I get home yeah you can't write it down and the only decent stuff that I get written down is if when I'm in the middle of that monologue I just start typing away and then it, it comes out and I, then afterwards I can then fiddle around with it with my other part of my brain so it's it's uh, maybe I should carry around a recorder but the best stuff is when I'm already in that monologue and I make myself I, I manage to just be at the right place so I can get it down and then then the work does itself I agree sometimes I like to like I have a little journal I like to reach over and just, you know sometimes I'll get up from bed because, I don't know, for me, that's when I have a lot of thoughts. I just get up from bed and start writing them down. Or, you know, now, day and age, we can just pull out your phone and put it into your notes. You know, something that you can look back at later. And because after he does that monologue, well, he, he just writes down what he's been doing that day. That's when his mind goes off. He says, but the curious thing that while he was doing so, a totally different memory 
had clarified itself in his mind to the point where he almost felt equal to writing it down in the diary that his stream of consciousness he stopped writing and he says it was a stream of rubbish they said but the curious thing was that whilst he was doing so a totally different memory had clarified itself in his mind to the point where he almost felt equal to writing it down that is when he moves in his memory to the ministry of truth when he's about to see o'brien and it's building up to the the two minute hate to side of a sidetrack here oh one thing i just want to bring up is just the three slogans of the party which he mentions on page six war is peace freedom is slavery ignorance is strength so with that in mind, it's worthy noting that the first thing he writes down in the diary is the, the war film that he saw, which I think there's some significance there. And if, if you want to go through, we can kind of like pick apart that little passage and then continue from there. I have kind of like separate comments. So, I mean, immediately there's a ship full of refugees being bombed somewhere in the Mediterranean. The audience much amused. So... Uh, right away, that's kind of interesting because the the image of death, people dying, bombs exploding, and here he's saying the audience is enjoying this. So um, I guess we makes you think about the impact of the television, maybe how it has these civilized people actually lusting for blood and enjoying violence. Maybe that's. They choose to do this, probably, and I don't think it's something, because violence is uh, probably one of the easiest things that can grab people's attentions. But, you know, worthy noting that the audience is actually enjoying seeing this violence. Well, yeah, and it fits in with the war hoax. It was something I, I was talking to JLB about, and it was, a nice, it was an idea which I had. I was trying to think how the war hoax could be a, a white pill. And what my thoughts were is that if we have this, tendency in our nature for violence by providing fake wars it satiate that hunger for violence without wars actually having to happen and then that's when john had pointed out that the slogan war is peace because that's why war is peace because if you have these fake wars then people's warlike tendencies are satiated and you actually end up having peace uh, yeah that is a good explanation I think something for like ignorance is strength. Then, if we we're going to touch on the slogans, um, I guess it ignorance is it keeps the, it's strong because it's like you're they're not even aware of the techniques that are being done for them to actually sit there and enjoy the gore and bloodshed and to you know accept the ideas that yeah people are you know overseas you know shooting each other down or whatever that happens there there's a lot of conditioning involved with that so if you know being ignorant to the conditioning i guess makes you strong and the, i guess the system strong as well and then you have your yeah, victory gin, etc. And then you have freedom and slavery. So whatever the victory was for, it wasn't for freedom. Yeah, ex yeah excellent. It was for the system. Excellent. And then you kind of, so what, what's interesting about this passage is so, you know, helicopters, gun sights, then he was full of holes and the sea around him turned pink as he sank suddenly as though the holes had let in the water. The audience shouting with laughter. And then... 
Then it gets interesting. A little boy about three years old in her arms, little boy screaming with fright and hiding his head between her breasts as if he was trying to burrow into her and the woman putting her arms around him and comforting him, although she was blue with fright herself. Um, I, it's kind of it's interesting that at the beginning, you're, you know, you're like the audience is laughing, you know, people dying, getting shot up. It's funny, right? But then this little boy who's also watching this film is actually like, no, like, holy crap. He per- he actually perceives that as real. So um, maybe it speaks to something how it kind of like what we just said, like that boy is not yet conditioned to violence. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like he's not there yet and also kind of touches on how these moving images on a screen can seem so real that it can even be hard to distinguish like what is real and what is not and it's funny that the young boy has this like scared reaction to it while the audience is like it's fun this is awesome you know they're having a great time i guess you see the progression of the borrow from brave new world the epsilon agenda that the boy is at the beginning of this process and then you see in the adults what the the end product of the process is in their different responses yeah exactly exactly it really showed trying to highlight that and then again you see so three times now it's like audience much amused audience shouting with laughter there's a lot of applause from the party seat so like there is this emphasis that yet like he's really trying to emphasize that like they like this cruelty they enjoy violence I, I guess that's part of being in a, you know, civilized society. <laughs> we somehow, like, you know, that it's already contradictory. We're so civilized, but we still love violence and bloodshed. Like, already there, contradiction. Yeah, and that, this is the first thing that Winston decides to, to write down. Yes, yeah, exactly. I want to stress that, like, this is the first thing. The first passage he's talking about is war and the, the psychological effects it has on people yeah he's trying to understand like what this is doing to the people that he's he's around yeah it seems that there's kind of like a suppression of a critical faculty um incapacity to distinguish truth from falsehood the individual from the collectivity action from talk like so i guess i don't know what it has to do with like maybe something about mass psychology and being in large groups like i said hard to distinguish truth from falsehood action from talk reality from statistics and so on so i guess that kind of um speaks to the power of propaganda here and this diary entry is what leads him into his other memory which is leading up to the the two minutes of hate Uh, and another thing that's worthy to note is that in the two minutes of hate winston himself cannot keep from joining it so it kind of says it kind of speaks about how hard it is to resist this subconscious manipulation like it can get so loud that even like you're gonna join in it exactly that was one of the most significant things about the the two minutes of hate for me is part of him is repulsed by it but he says no matter no matter how no matter how much at some point you can't help but join in and you when i remembered that passage i thought to myself that he joined in and obviously that may, might be part of it because he doesn't want to be seen to not be joining in but the way he says it it seems like it's not just for show a part of him actually wants to then join in and then if you think about any aspect of the crowd 
you think, well, is that person going along with it just because he doesn't want to look like he's not? But actually, it's probably deeper that they get you get so swept up that you actually you start to think as the crowd, which is what's happening to him at that point. Yeah, I remember it reminds me of one of, well, I mean, where John actually got his name, I guess, his pseudonym from, you know, Gustav Lebon, the crowd, he, he, he delves more into crowd psychology and how, how we're influenced by being in a crowd. Well, which in, in the two minutes of hate uh, jumped out to me was uh, Goldstein, as he's, as he's on the screen <clears throat> and they're all hating him, his voice starts to become bleating. And he starts to appear uh, sheepish. And at the end, I think it just for a, like just for a brief instant, his face becomes a sheep. Now, what that made me think of is um, that the person they're hating, if he's turning into a sheep and taking on these characteristics, sheep are herd-like creatures, and the people who are hating him are the herd. So they're kind of being programmed. They're basically hating themselves for being the herd. <laughs> Interesting. I'm, which page is this one on? I'm trying to look at it. On the ebook I'm using, it starts on the 17th page, ends of a paragraph, and it says, the dull rhythmic tramp of the soldier's boots form the background to Goldstein's bleating voice. It's all good. It, yeah, just set your thoughts out. I think it's, I'm having trouble finding it. <laughs> it's all good. It then goes on to say <clears throat> about his face, that it resembled the face of a sheep. And the voice too had a sheep-like quality. And then towards the end, it says just for an instant, his face becomes a sheep. It, at different points, it says the self-satisfied sheep-like face on the screen. It keeps mentioning bleating and that he looks like a sheep. And I say at the end, he actually, his face just for an instant becomes a sheep. Just as, and the more he does, the more people start to jeer. So they are the sheep and the herd. The only people that they really hate are themselves, which is kind of often, it's not an unusual thing, I think, for when people who are very agitated or triggered or upset, the thing that they're really probably upset with is normally themselves. Another thing that was interesting is that he starts one of these paragraphs and it says, as usual, the face of Goldstein, the enemy of the people, had flashed on the screen. The, the fact that he says, as usual, it's like, yep, you know, this is a typical reoccurring occurrence where, the, you know, this, this Goldstein guy is projected and people are able to direct their hates towards him. And then after they hate him, they go completely to the opposite side and start chanting, be like, big brother, big brother. They're hating themselves in Goldstein. And then their immediate response is to start chanting for big brother, big brother. Yeah, kind of, it's really eerie. <laughs> and the whole time you say like the crowd are hissing, you know, the woman gave a squeak of mingled fear and disgust. So at the whole time, it's like it, you just get this real sense of like fear, anxiety and chaos that is going on during these two minutes of hate. And this memory of first of all hating Goldstein, then chanting for Big Brother, leads him to start writing in his diary, down with Big Brother, down with Big Brother, down with Big Brother. Each part leads on and then now he is involved in his own like written mini two minutes of hate, but his is directed to Big Brother. And then there's a passage and a sentence in there that says, but still it was more an act of self-hypnosis 
a deliberate drowning of consciousness by means of rhythmic noise. Uh, that was definitely a theme that was common in Brave New World, where the, when the kids are like growing up, they're constantly being instructed from these like rhythmic sounds and noises. Apparently, so the two minutes of hate where these people can make these chants, it's it's promoting further unconsciousness. Like, it's almost like keeping them down in that lower mental state. Well, self-hypnosis, and it's, I mean, I've self-hypnotized myself before into some odd beliefs. I, I mentioned it on the last call I did, that I used to be, I used to be an Orthodox Christian monk, and I, probably people won't know much about this, but uh, one of the standard spiritual things that they do is called the Jesus Prayer, and it has various forms. But you basically, a lot of the saints and monks say you should be saying this as much as you can, like even under your breath or in your head. And you're basically saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have, have mercy on me. And people go around saying it to themselves, like the whole time, or they try to. And you're basically hypnotizing yourself. And then, yeah, you're getting up early morning, and the first thing you do is you're saying it in the dark, and you're, you're like still half asleep. And it's exactly the same thing. Like the standard spiritual technique is basically hypnotizing yourself. And then you see it in Eastern religions with them, like repetitive mantras. That word self-hypnosis, it, it took me back to some strange times. Yeah, and I, it's a nice piece of anecdotal evidence you gave about your experience as a monk. And maybe stuff like slogans, repeating slogans is a part of that process. Or I remember, at least when I was in school in America, we would always say like the Pledge of Allegiance every day before the, like we got class started in the morning. In England, that always that always seemed like the weirdest thing in the world to us. I've seen it on film, but I could never quite believe it actually happened. Yeah, so I, I'm sure there's a lot of these, you know, self-hypnotizing rhythmic noises that we engage in a lot during the day. I mean, even something like, you know, listening to music and people like to sing their favorite songs, that could also be considered self-hypnosis. Yeah, well, it goes back to old uh, Winston when he's starting his diary. He's he's trying to deal with that incessant monologue of thoughts. And, you know, if you have to do something new, like from anecdotal evidence, I'll start saying, so, oh, I, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is never going to work out. And, yeah, you're just, you're hit, you know, you can hypnotize yourself to fail at anything or to do the wrong thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think, like, even, like, you know, you mimic, characters behaviors in like your favorite tv show out there you know you you might be repeating the same lines when you get in the same stressful situation you know so a lot of the stuff in this chapter seems to it kind of links into that with winston trying to deal deal with his programming he's got his diary you know i i mentioned i thought thought he might be a, he may not be a full pc but he has the potential to be and then even at the beginning when we noted that his room is set up in a particular way where he can do this so um, i'd be wondering if maybe there's someone who's purposely giving him this opportunity or maybe he was innately born with it you know maybe he you know lucky he came into the world with that you know we came in with our, our rooms configured a certain way that you know uh maybe we're allowed to have our own thoughts while others are given a room where they're unable to have that ability Maybe that could be, you know, a metaphor for something. Uh, yeah, I, and as you were saying, it, the room, it reminds me of his own room where he can go to is basically the only thing we have is our head where we can go into. 
Yep. Uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. So right after that uh, anecdote about the war film that he wrote down in his diary, I thought this was a little interesting. You know, when he meets the girl who often passed in the corridors, he did not know her name, but he knew that she worked in the Department of Fiction. And then a couple sentences, he's like, she was a bold-looking girl of about 27 which I think is 33 because three cubed is 27. So, you know, Department of Fiction, this girl is 27 years old. 27 is three to the power of three. Not trying to draw any conclusions, but just something uh, that I, I noticed when I was reading. We'll see as the book goes on. She does. Her and O'Brien, he, he meets them together and they are two pretty significant people as it, as it goes on. Yeah, so... And just as we're getting towards the end of the chapter, as we were talking in the pre-chat and it, it hadn't come to me in advance because at the beginning of the chapter, we learn about Big Brother on the poster and then the Thought Police. And we were talking, we were talking about how it's often viewed as the Thought Police are this organization, which are the ones who are going to come and get you if you think the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. But in reality, it's usually each other who are the people that police each other's thoughts and control each other. Exactly. At the, at the very end of the chapter, after he writes down, down with Big Brother, he suddenly gets seized with a hysteria that he, he sees his end straight away. So it's that same thing about a cycle. He says, they'll shoot me. I don't care. They'll shoot me in the back of the neck. And so he sees, in the beginning, he sees what he thinks is going to be his end. And then there's the knock on the door. And he's fearful because he thinks, well, they've come for me already, like the thought police. What will turn out at the beginning of chapter two is actually it's his neighbor who he's scared of because they report on each other in the party. So we see he's fearful of this hierarchical thought police, but when he thinks they're coming, it's actually his neighbor who is knocking on the door. Yeah, exactly. And for like a piece of anecdotal evidence, it's like you, I'm sure you guys probably uh, told your family or friends, you know, 9-11, nobody died or got hurt. And then, you know, some of the responses right away are like, oh, my God, that's insulting to the victims. How, how dare you? <laughs> or, or like, there's no way th there was ambulance there. Like, th this had to happen. Like, they, they can't even engage with the possibility that no one died or got hurt. It's they're immediately stuck on whatever they were programmed to believe here. The FBI haven't broken down your door and dragged you away because of saying it. It's, it's only the people around who try to control you for doing it. Yes, yes, precisely. Another thing I kind of I, I picked up on, you know, after he meets this girl, he just goes into this diatribe of like, you know, I hate her. So he, he goes on to this diatribe when he sees this young woman and he's just like he disliked nearly all women and especially the young and pretty ones i think that neighbor who walks in i think she was a woman well like who had a problem with their sink or something but i, I thought it was kind of peculiar that or like uh, this is one of the things he brings up immediately in his book he's like right away a couple pages in he's like yeah he brings up women right away like this i'm not exactly sure why maybe the uh, he's saying women are more easily influenced i'm not really sure but I, I think you just have to kind of keep reading the book and you know put the pieces together from there and the the dangers of a of a pretty girl yeah 
kind of I'm I'm not I'm I I believe there's a reason, but I'm not sure why what the reason is. But it's very interesting that he brought that's he, that's one of the you know few things he brings up right away in the book. Yeah, I hadn't considered that when I was reading it, but I'm gonna keep it in my head. Sweet. Um, I'm gonna just looking through here for maybe another passage that stuck to me. Uh, do you have any right now? No, I think. Those were the main things that stuck out for me. Another thing, I guess, for me then would be uh, when he describes the caught police. He, let me see. I think it was Goldstein and his uh, runnings with the thought police. Yeah, they're talking about spies working for him, getting caught by the police. He was a commander of a vast shadow army of underground network of conspirators dedicated to the overthrow of the state. To me, that really highlights the era in which this book was written in, where nationalist propaganda was probably a lot more prevalent. So I guess that's one consideration we should take in when reading this book is the time that it was written in, how the stories are conveyed. The only other thing I would add as it's the beginning of the chapter is I think I think JLB has George Orwell down as being a hoax character. But in story of the character anyway, he works for the BBC in real life and obviously in the book he works for for the Ministry of Truth and <laughs> growing up in well the British Isles I mean the BBC if ever there was a propaganda machine for the whatever the current social programming is the BBC has it down to a fine art yeah yeah, um, I remember I was talking about the technological society in the pre-call, but that's one of the things Allah was alluding to that, yeah, like he actually, like they would fake news. I remember he mentioned that in a passage. So uh, I'm sure some of these stories you're probably hearing in 1984 are probably faked as well, or maybe that's implied. Uh, yeah, I mean, I even think, according to the yeah, the official story of his life, he was he was like a wartime broadcaster. So if he was a real person, then that may well be how he knew about the war hoax. Yeah, he he may have seen that. Like similar to how, when you're uh, Albert the Great, when you ask that woman, like, "Hey, has anybody checked the any of the older records?" and she was like, "No, we've never done that." Uh, maybe. Uh, Orwell may have been in a similar situation, but he actually was more aware of going on around him. And like he maybe he was checking like, you know, this this doesn't seem real at all. You see what I'm trying to say? Well, yeah. And one of the the contradictions I've always seen with Orwell is in, in his life. I mean, I read Down and Out in Paris and I read some of his other like memoir books. And, you know, he. He even said himself he was a democratic socialist, and so many of his thought of his of his non-fictional writings seem to indicate for me is a an ideology, and maybe he didn't see it this way, but an ideology which for me would lead to a 1984 kind of society. So there's always been. I've always thought there's a kind of contradiction between his own personal... And he might not have seen that it would lead it there, but I always thought it was an odd thing. And it kind of adds for me to that sense where in the book, you know, it's revealing certain truths and hoaxes, but at the same time, there's some other aspects 
which could all, which could lead you into a very negative way of thinking and you, there's that same kind of division almost in his thought of between if he's warning about something what he's warning about and the type of political ideology which he held okay so that was a lot <laughs> i'm trying to unpack that so you're saying that <laughs> even even as he writes about that he may not even uh, realize the own contradictions that he still holds yeah i can never i mean i read some of his his like political writing on the english language is excellent you think where he's trying he's obviously arguing against that kind of thing but he seemed to always be a committed socialist and he said he was never a totalitarian socialist but a democratic one but for me the one leads to the other so I, mean, I don't know i don't know if he just didn't realize it or if it was part of the same thing that you almost see in this book where you're being you're being revealed these things which are going to warn you about something or are going to reveal some hoaxes but at the same time there's all this like fear and paranoia at the same time which you could latch on to oh yep so just so just this seems to be in his own thinking there's this there's these things which don't quite fit and sometimes in the way you can see the book in such two different ways. So it's just there's a similarity there for me, which I've never quite been able to understand. Okay, now now I see what you're trying to say. I guess to kind of add that in a tangential way is that like in around this time period, this sort of, you know, future modern technical society seemed to be of great discussion amongst a lot of the thinkers of those days because you got 1984 then you got huxley's brave new world and you you got like mr alal and technological society you got like eric Fromm. so yeah this seems to be a very hot topic of discussion amongst a lot of the i i'll just say a lot of the big thinkers of those days yeah and then there's (laughs) there's another part of me would think even what I just said is part of the whole hoax, and perhaps things just aren't as bad as <laughs> aren't as bad as we think. <laughs> yeah, maybe. How much of like the fear in our own programming like might might get in the way of our own beliefs? Unfortunately, I have an ability, like, not quite like uh, I can double think. You hold they hold contradictory opinions at the same time whilst believing them both to be true. I think, I'm not sure if they realise it or not, but I have the ability, not necessarily to hold contradictory opinions, but to hold a myriad of interpretations of something at the same time in my head. <laughs> Sometimes it can be a bit exhausting. Yeah, it seems to be like a common theme with like in these movies, you know, I don't know, seeming like, I don't know, the, the Matrix or something like that. Like, there really isn't one right interpretation. Like, there, there's many different interpretations that, that may fit so i don't th- i don't think you have to necessarily pick one but yeah you should be open to entertaining a lot of these different ideas i i almost think like they do that on purpose man there, there's just there's like there's just so many layers with this some of this um uh content that's put out there but jumping ahead with goldstein it's a it towards the like much later on i think he asks o'brien was goldstein even a, a real person was there ever really a book and i can't remember o'brien's exact words but he says the point is is that you're never meant to be able to work it out so he could have been a real person there could have been a book but there might not have been it might be a complete hoax and the point is, is that you're ne- you're not meant to be able to know, and it kind of fits in with Lester Needian's idea of the lie system. Chris, yes, that's exactly what I was about to say. 
it it really uh, the greatest conspiracy of all of them, as he puts it. And yeah, it's I never noticed that connection in 1984, huh? Well, because someone mentioned on the Discord server, because John Nabon was mentioning about uh, people's views on Hitler, which we don't necessarily have to go into. But the reason I bring it up because someone mentioned that. Uh, for them, he was a Goldstein-type boogeyman. But the fact that he was a Goldstein-type boogeyman doesn't necessarily mean, and I'm not saying that he was a real person or wasn't, it doesn't necessarily... You can be a Goldstein-type boogeyman and still have been a real person, but the point is, is that, you're, that the people are not meant to be able to know if he was or he wasn't, or if he did write the book or he didn't write the book. So being a Goldstein boogeyman doesn't preclude one or the other in their reality or not. Yeah, exactly. Because there's, there's never sufficient evidence to really prove otherwise. So you're, you're left to make the decision yourself. And all you can do is look at their claim, and if the claim looks like a whole load of nonsense, you can say, well, yeah, sure, I can't know for certain, but it looks like a whole load of nonsense to me. And the really scary part about that was like how that pushes you to make a decision about on claim and you have to use your emotions. Like, how do I feel about this? Which, as John said, that can that actually can build and become a habit (laughs) to where you anything you see, you're you're, even though the claim is vaguely presented, like you're going to be making decisions about how you feel about it and not what evidence there is to support it. And one claim is given the weight of authority and consensus. Exactly, and then all other claims are ridiculed. So it um, really is sheep-like behavior. Exactly, so yeah, you're left with not being able to know a weight of, of consensus and authority on one side. If you, if you think it's nonsense and you can't know the second on the other side, then you have to yeah, deal, with the, deal with the herd. So my thing is, it's like, if you're presenting me with this claim, then the pr- the burden of proof should be on you, not on me, you know? Like that Crow video, like, hey, man, if you if you want to really cut up all these different shots and chop it up and, you know, mix and match it, it's like, hey, man, why couldn't you just put that out there in a straight manner? Why, why do you got to, like, fiddle with it and play games with me now? So, I, I mean, I think it's fair just to call fake on a lot of it because it's like the burden's not on me to prove that it's real like you're telling you're presenting me with a claim prove you should be proving to me that this claim is real whether or not like goldstein or hitler existed but if you want me to believe such a thing like the burden of proof is on you you know what i'm trying to say yeah i imagine it like say i tell you that i've got a unicorn in my pocket and then you say i don't believe you've got a unicorn in your pocket and i say yeah right i'm not supposed to tell you (laughs) that's not on me to say well, if I haven't got a unicorn in my pocket, what is in my pocket? Yeah, it seems to be how a lot of, like, how, it's how we engage with a lot of, um, in, like, just say content in the world, ideas. No, you have to give me an alternative, otherwise you must believe there's a unicorn in my pocket. Uh, to, to bring it back to the book for a second, another passage that kind of stuck out to me was, right, so the paragraph right before it says the rhythmical chant of B, 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 B. Uh, it mentions the little sandy haired woman had flung herself forward over the back of the chair in front of her with the tremulous murmur that sounded like my savior. And 
that stuck out to me because even these images on a screen, it's like they're so real that like people they engage with it as it if it's more it's like hyper real like if you want to use Baudrillard as his um you know terminology it, it's it's more real than real honestly and this woman even perceive like has influenced her thoughts actions and behavior to like act on what she sees on the screen and um that kind of makes me think about if you ever go on youtube type in like dogs watching tv or something and it's like they they cannot even see that the animals that they're watching on their television are fake like it's like the dog's barking there and engaging it as well so i it kind of just touches on how real things on the tv seem to be yeah it just has a significant impact on people's thoughts and behaviors oh if it's on tv then it's real yeah right <laughs> it has to like, like yeah that's also touching on like your condition to accept authority and authority figures but i saw it on tv i saw it on the news uh, well you got to uh one we want to influence you uh, well how do you explain then that i saw it on the news last night if it's not true explain that one for me <laughs> <laughs> nah, no, I know. I'm trying. I don't. Yeah, it's tough, dude. I'm trying to actually give an answer. Like, why? Why would they make you think people die? But why? But why would they do that? Uh, so is it is it news now that everybody knows it? You know, the fact that it the news it means that it is spread far and wide. But it does not mean that the news, the information being presented, is based on any facts or evidence. The fact that it's news only means that it is spread far and wide. Sorry, uh... <laughs> what, you say, you say, yeah, wouldn't the, wouldn't the news reporters speak out eventually? Wouldn't someone say something? I, I read a, I don't know if it's true, but I read a, there's a journalist, I think it was Peter Hitchens, who writes in, the, in England for the Mail, and he said that he was in East Germany towards the end of, like, communism there and he said that there were people who were near the border with west germany and they could hit they could pick up the radio from west germany and they could hear what they were saying and they could compare it which was on the radio in east germany so they knew there was completely different stories being told so they didn't believe what was in pravda or whatever but the people who are further away from the border nearer towards say the, the east they couldn't pick up the radio so they were much more likely to believe the stories that they were given in their propaganda on like the radio or the newspapers. And the people, and they did, I can't remember the word he used, but it would be the equivalent to the people who were close to the West German borders pretty much called the people who were further east normies because they believed everything that they were told in the paper. Uh, that's interesting how they can kind of realize that both are lying after hearing what's going on east and west but if you're isolated and not allowed to hear what's going on like you know the other side then you're you're gonna be uh more easily convinced let's put it that way which is what's happening in this in this first chapter like when he writes down they're, they're all going to you know they go and see the propaganda together they go to the two minutes eight together there's, there's no way of stepping outside of the system they're in and seeing it for themselves yeah and even if they do like someone like winston there there's still like friction with the world when you try to gauge it with yourself and there's a lot of fear and anxiety like that's uh coupled with that friction there's even some hints of it here he realizes himself towards the end of the chapter that you know his mistake because i i wonder if his mistake was thinking that he could completely escape 
the system rather than trying to find his own inner freedom within it because I mentioned in the call with JLB that I kind of now see the whole world as a cult in the sense I mean is it possible to step outside in our world is it possible to step outside of the system seems kind of unlikely the best that you can hope for and it seems that we are allowed to do it it's just whether you're persistent enough is to find your own freedom within it. I don't know if it's a slightly depressing view, but I wonder if Winston's mistake and while is that he feels somehow he can actually either bring down the system. You know, he, he says he's going to write to the future at a time where it may be different. So either bring it down or somehow step outside. And even in the system we live in, I, I'm not sure that is a likely outcome. No, and I think maybe another way of saying it would be like you can give it your body but you can't don't give it your mind and i mean any any time you try to fight the system and bring it down it's like i mean like you're not you can't win which i guess kind of foreshadows the end of 1984 where you know winston he uh, he gets the book he wants to fight he wants to take down big brother but at the end of the day it's like nah it was o'brien pulling a ruse on him Sorry, at the beginning, yeah, when he has his diary, he's given, and his certain flat, he's given this freedom to have his own thought. And maybe if he'd have had that, he could have had his own freedom within the system, but he, he takes it in a different direction, and that's ultimately his undoing. Yeah, so it, it does speak to living living in the system, but I guess, I, I guess it's, I don't know, living physically in it, but spiritually, like mentally, like you're living outside of it. I'm not, I think that's about the best, well, as I can see it, is one can, one can hope for. So any, anything else from the chapter you want to touch on? No, I think that was, that was everything that came up for me. Wondering how you found, I mean, obviously it was our, it was our first attempt. Uh, I was with the form I was wondering if because obviously we kind of went a little bit around the houses so I was wondering if perhaps next time we should exchange uh, like segments which we're particularly interested in in advance and then work through and the reason I say that is because if anyone else <laughs> if anyone else does listen and thinks oh well I could I could add something to that then they could read two chapters in a week and then perhaps share what points jump out at them and then time we could have a similar format of reading out the paragraphs but exchange in advance. Okay, so pick out which passages we like and then and you know you know break it down here's what I want to talk about. Have it more structured in that sense like here's like you know the passages or pages we're really going to dive into. Yeah, exactly. And then we can go through it through the chapter so and then we'll know in advance that oh I should pay attention to that one as well. Okay. It might just give a bit of structure and then we can like go off on each section as we go as we go down if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. That is a good idea. So it, it follows a little um like path, orderly path instead of like jumping to different parts of the chapter and like as you said it does leave room to add thoughts on after the fact. Yeah, I mean that that would work for me if we did that. As I say, if we if we managed to convince anyone else to join, because I was talking to John earlier, and with two people, it can be difficult sometimes because you're constantly you're constant the pressure's constantly on to say something interesting. Whereas if you have a third person, you get a bit of a break because it, it can go round a little bit. But yeah, I that's I, that's true. But I also want the practice too. <laughs> I want to get better at this. <laughs>
exactly it, it does it, like i hadn't until we did it i hadn't really i didn't hadn't thought enough about what the best the best structure for doing it was but i think i think that was where if we maybe like set a day to exchange like the key sections which have stood out for us and what page they were on and we can just put it on one document like those sections in order as they come and then we can just go through them like that yeah yeah, I like that. We can do that. You know, you know, going through it, this experience has like highlighted ways that we can like fine tune it, and maybe we can even find out how to incorporate audio in at some point. You know, like a narrator reading the text instead of us doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that that would probably work work well. And um, but as you say, I mean, the main thing for me is just I'm so I'm so blooming lazy sometimes. Just just by having the pressure of having to read the chapter by a certain point. Is mainly just to make myself do it. I mean, still, even even if the production quality isn't the best, we uh, hopefully we still uh, you know gain something from this, help expand our thinking a bit. You've definitely did present a lot of ideas that I initially hadn't considered when I read it through. So that's good. I hadn't considered them until they started coming out of my mouth. So one more passage I think I want to just kind of touch on here was so right after he's talking about how bad the two minutes of hate thing is and how he uncontrollably joins into it passage goes a hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness a desire to kill to torture to smash in uh, smash faces in with a sledgehammer seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current to turning one even against one's will into a grimacing screaming lunatic oh what i wrote down here for my first thoughts was like it's like okay this tv runs on electricity the images are projected through electricity you know so is there somehow a wavelength that we all connect to or align ourselves with with like what the content is being broadcasted in i guess uh, i just wrote this godhood is the pursuit to manipulate and control people's reality artificially kind of what the telescreen is for me beliefs are the way that the, our body machine is programmed and it's either the ones that we we download into it or the ones that someone else downloads into it yes and if you have the ones that uh someone else had made uh you know your your files can get corrupted <laughs> put it that way i guess exactly i mean people have mentioned it before the use of the word script in computer language if you're downloading someone else's scripts then you're just an actor in their play yeah in this whole artificial world that is created is um i mean whoever has the means to produce such a world like the technology and the money to do so in a false sense they're they're playing God because they're able to manipulate so many people's reality. It's all done in their artificial mean. I guess, I don't know, maybe part of like the pursuit for power and influence, but it's kind of weird how the artificial grafts itself onto the natural. And the thing is, and in this chapter, you, well, actually, the next beginning of the next chapter, you see that you go, when the neighbor comes, is the children there. I mean, the children are true believers. And in this one, the child, you see that they're already starting to be programmed in the, the war propaganda. And you often hear when people talk about cults, they'll say something like, well, no one ever realizes that they're in a cult or no one ever joins a cult because they don't realize it is one. But then you talk about people who are born into it, say, oh, I was born into a cult, so I had no choice. So in this, in this system, in the book, the children are born into the system. In our reality, no one thinks that they're, everyone thinks that they have 
this choice about the system, but we're all in the same way born in, we're born into the system, we're born into the world cult that we're in, and we're given its dogmas and propagandas. We may not see it as stark as is portrayed in this chapter, but in reality, we're, we're just, we're as much born into the system as a child is in, in this beginning chapter. Yeah, excellent, excellent observation there. And I, I don't know if it mentions how old these kids are, but I mean, again, from that little diary passage, the three-year-old was kind of freaked out about all this war stuff. But, you know, maybe as the kids get a little bit older, they, uh, they become more adjusted, <laughs> to put it like that. It's one way of dealing with it, to adjust to the system. Yeah, because I... Yeah. You kind of have to, though, because imagine that if that boy never adjusted, he's, you know, almost everything he engages with at a daily basis is just going to, you know, kind of freak him out. There is a pain to, to being someone that sees things the way they are. And there's a, I guess there may be a blip to the one who just swims in it as if it was, you know, the water all around them. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, less, less traumatizing. Once you, I guess, kind of accept it. Yeah, and nowadays, like, in fact, what I was saying, how Winston should be, I'm probably just projecting onto him the way I am nowadays, because I wander around to all intents, all intents and purposes externally, as if i almost disappearing, but in my head, I wonder about things and try to see it as it is. Yeah, kind of... I'm sure there's stuff I probably engage with a lot that doesn't necessarily bother me because, you know, we, we all, like you said, we're all born into the system. So there's probably uh, certain content that maybe or things that we engage with that, you know, we, we're not even realizing, like, you know, <laughs> we, we were indoctrinated into that. And it can be kind of fun, you know, like, <laughs> so much odd stuff and programming. Once you see it, it kind of, some of it comes, comes kind of, Oh yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. This is is this a joke? <laughs> like what's going on here? Like what am I doing? <laughs> um, maybe that's poor old poor old Winston's problem. He was just too gloomy about it. He couldn't laugh at it all. It was just all you know, his temperament, it was just all too much for him. It's like oh, in fact maybe that's why that first light yeah, the in this chapter, I don't just thought about it, but it's all about like the cabbage and it's so bleak. Maybe that is talking about Winston's own characteristics. So maybe, maybe, because I think sometimes the way that you, what you believe about the world could actually change the way you perceive it. And maybe his gloominess is actually changing his own perceptions. So not, I'm not saying the system's good. But if, maybe if he was able to laugh at it all, he wouldn't have, he'd, he'd have been able to deal with it a bit better yeah I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up it's uh yeah definitely it's not all doom and gloom i i mean i kind of think it's funny <laughs> it's kind of funny too man like i'm uh you gotta change my mood here like yeah man i i do laugh at some of the you know i, I see these fake shootings they're putting out it is kind of funny <laughs> it is okay it is spiritual murder and that is a bad thing to do but um you know just kind of step back and just look at this clown show <laughs> and just kind of laugh at it for what it is you know, I don't mean to advertise, but I recently dropped my first YouTube video entitled Hermes, God of This World, which addresses all of these points. It's fairly short as well. Perfect. Now, everybody who's listening to this should go and check out Dipey's video. I'm, I'm already well addicted to to what <laughs> to watching my double digit views go up. It's my it's my soma. You're going viral, man. 
we're taking down the global <laughs> one view at a time. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm up to 25. They're trying to shut me down, folks. They're, they're stopping it at 25 views. That's it. No more. You gotta, you gotta watch before it, it gets taken down, guys. You, you gotta hurry up here. I'm fairly certain they're manipulating my view figures. Uh, oh, I'm sure they, they gotta stop us. <laughs> no wrong think aloud. I stand for truth. Yeah, I, I think this is probably a good part to end the call. <laughs> yeah, but otherwise I'm gonna, I'm gonna go slightly weird. Yeah, we're gonna just keep clowning off. <laughs> Here, I'm gonna see if I can do it, or maybe TNG will have to come in. I'm gonna give it a shot. Yeah, huh? Okay, yep. Hello, TNG.